primary care knowledge boost MSK miniseries shoulder pain. Welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Thanks for joining us. Today we have part two of three of our MSK mini-series and we're going to talk to Charlotte Baker and Tom Smith again who are both first contact physiotherapists and they are going to talk us through shoulder pain. Yes, uh, we take a similar approach to the back pain episode if you've listened to that. Um, It's um, taking a case, um, a fairly barn door um, case um, that you might see of shoulder pain and then um, getting their thoughts about initial assessment, red flags, um, important examination tips and differentials. Yeah, and you'll hear that we go straight into asking them questions um, in the interest of keeping these short and snappy. And we hope you enjoy. Thank you guys for coming back and speaking to us again. Um, so we are covering um, shoulder this time. So we're, we've taken the same um, concept. So we've got a case um, to base the discussion off of. Um, so this is a 45-year-old lady called Suzanne. Um, she started with pain over the outside of her shoulder about four weeks ago. Um, she's really struggling to lift her arm and it feels like her movements are getting quite restricted. Um, and it's starting to disturb her sleep um, with the pain and with lying on that side particularly. And she started to notice some pins and needles intermittently um, in her right arm. Um, so how would you go about initial assessment um, of Suzanne? So it's start by taking like a thorough history from the patient. Obviously let the patient uh, give us some information about how long she's had it for, if there's been any trauma, so the mechanism of injury, if there's been any mechanism, the location of the pain, um, we would probably used a lot of open questions initially to let them just tell her story and then specific closed questions. So um, if there's any clicking, clunking in the shoulder, if she's had any previous shoulder problems before, how, how it's impacting on her day to day, how it's impacting on her quality of life. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, generally we want to identify the problems that they're having. So what are the main concerns how is the pain impacting them from a day-to-day point of view, from a function perspective, from a sleep perspective as well? Because quite frequently they'll they'll experience disrupted sleep patterns. Um, I think given her age as well and the type of pain she's got, a past medical history will probably be quite important. Is is she diabetic? Is she menopausal? Has she got any problems with a gallbladder? Different things like that. That's really interesting. Um, you mentioned most of the points on my next question which is like what are the really important things to elicit on a history of shoulder pain the mechanism the location is really important um if if it's going all the way down the ram we're not we're thinking is there some cervical involvement if it's specifically quite local to the shoulder what structures around that area might be causing the pain like any like if she's had some trauma um are we thinking there's any structural damage is she noticing signs in her shoulder clunking that she not had before with a trauma? Are we thinking structural damage? So we get a lot, don't we, that um, are a traumatic onset as well. So lots and lots of sort of degenerative tendinopathic cuff-related issues um, that will come on potentially spontaneously out of nowhere. So we sort of want to rule out if there has been some kind of overload or traumatic event, um, but frequently there hasn't. Yeah, have they changed the routine recently? Have they done more exercise? Um, any kind of changes in the like, social life? Mm, okay, yeah. 
Um, and um, I think we mentioned in the back pain the um, the time constraints um, within general practice um, and the fact that we only have 10 to 15 minutes for consultations such as these. Um, so do you have any top tips or important um, areas of examination that should be done um, for a shoulder pain history? Definitely observing the patient, you know, having a look for any kind of like muscle wastage, any way that they're protecting the shoulder. Range of movement of the shoulder is really important you know, and active and passive. Is it is it physically restricted is it just pain limiting the movement um quite good to palpate around the shoulder for specific structures and maybe palpate the neck as well just to see if the neck elicits any of the pain in the shoulder have they got a capsular pattern where they can't rotate or abduct their arm i think off the sort of the narrative or the subjective information you can tend to tailor what you're going to do from an objective perspective so you might have quite a good idea of what you think is going on from the discussion but yeah we generally check sort of observations up active and passive range of movements and uh, muscle strength don't we really Mm -hmm. yeah muscle power yeah is the rotator cuff intact do we think we would do special tests as well but I'm not sure if that would be something that a GP would necessarily have time to do in primary care but they don't probably just help us confirm what we're already thinking would you agree I think like they're not, they're not too time consuming if you choose specifically what tests you're doing for a particular reason um, and there's loads and loads and loads of different shoulder tests out there so it can be a bit overwhelming really if the patient's in a lot of pain and really aggravated with the pain, the test's probably not going to give us a lot of information because everything's probably going to hurt. Yeah. yeah, like a frozen shoulder where they just yeah. really can't move it. And we can often, from a frozen shoulder, get it from just passive movement and the way that the pain's behaving. Um, what about, so have you got your favourite special test? Because I, I think I was trying to learn just a couple to try and keep it simple. And I think it was one for supraspinatus, where it looks like you're kind of holding a pint glass and then you pour it empty out. Can. Yeah. Yeah, empty can, yeah. Yeah, that would be one I would use. Oh, would you? A Hawkins and Kennedy test. Ooh, what's that one? So you'd sort of bring them out into flexion and then uh, internally rotate um, for subacromial pain. But again, if if they've got a frozen shoulder, that's going to hurt. If they've got a slap toe, that's probably going to hurt. There's, there's a few tests for testing cuff integrity as well, isn't there? Like um, the belly off and lift off um, tests. So your belly off, you'd put your arm over your tummy and then you'd try and get them to stop you moving their arm. All right. The subscapulari. Yeah. I know you have a chest in you now. <laughs> and then uh, external rotation lag, you'd get them to externally rotate and see if they could hold it in that position. Because if you've got an infraspinatus toe, they might start drifting back in. And then you've got a drop arm, so you'd take them out into abduction and see if they could maintain that position. Is that for a supraspinatus? That's a supraspinatus. But they've all got to be done in context with your history and what they're telling you as well. Because I wonder if I just go, right, it's rotate, it's probably rotator cuff and I just send them off to you, I think. <laughs> if it's a rotator cuff toe, they might have positive tests in any of those three. Yeah. If it's more just like an irritated, thickened cuff, they might still be able to do those things. It just might be that they've got like a, a acute tendinopathy. Yeah. So you can sort of tell the difference between a tear and a, a tendinopathy. Yeah, the, the, the cuff tears can be atraumatic or traumatic. So um, some come on spontaneously out of nowhere. They will tend to have like a significant restriction of active movement and the large cuff tears can't move very well at all. So they're really obvious. Yeah, they're easy. <laughs> yeah. Cuff tears, where there's been a trauma, it's important that we rule out, obviously, a fracture if it's been 
quite recent, isn't it? Is it easy to tell a cuff tear from a frozen shoulder? So a cuff, cuff tear generally will have very limited active movement. A frozen shoulder might also have very limited active movement, but they're passively restricted as well. Whereas the cuff tears will generally passively move through range. So yeah, it, you can you can pick up quite a lot just with a few different simple bits and pieces really from from an assessment point of view. Yeah. And um, you've, you have touched on a few bits there, but um, what differentials would be going through your head um, normally with a history like this? Possible frozen shoulder, given a rage um, and a pain's quite severe, disturbing a sleep, uh, acute tendinopathy, rotator cuff tendinopathy, uh, possible referral from the cervical spine. Is Because you said, did we say the pain's going all the way down the arm? She's getting pins and needles. Pins and needles, yeah. So possible cervical spine. We'd have done a neuro examination in uh, the objective assessment as well to check her dermatomes and myotomes of reflexes uh, because she's getting pins and needles. Obviously, rotator cuff tear. Again, we'd probably get a lot of that from a history. If she's suddenly lost movement, either through a trauma or no trauma, or there's obviously the degenerative tears where there might just been a deterioration in a movement and a pain. We get we get the odd ones where people have got very very severe pain levels as well um, with active movement restriction. So um, brachial neuritis is probably on that list of things to look mm-hmm. out for. Um, Parsonage Turner syndrome and yeah, non mechanical uh, non MSK related pain. So visceral referral patterns. Charlotte already mentioned can can refer to the the shoulder region and the scapular region. But yeah, hopefully the the pain behaviour would probably be slightly different. So it might not be triggered by uh, movement, might not be sensitive to movement, might be sort of spontaneously flaring in in relation to different times of the day, meals and things like that. Have you ever seen that? I don't think I often think of it. I haven't seen it, but I have listened to a podcast on a case study about one. Yeah, Yeah, there's a good podcast with different um, interesting cases, isn't there? Is it um, is it worth considering an inflammatory cause um, when you're thinking about shoulder pain? Uh, yeah, certainly. I think um, so. It's not generally a common joint to get significant osteoarthritic changes in, or be affected by rheumatoid arthritis as well. Um, so we'd be sort of thinking about multi joint presentations, really. Um, bilateral shoulder pain of spontaneous onset. Um, certainly along with pelvic girdle pain would raise suspicions of polymyalgia rheumatica. Um, the, the levels of morning stiffness would probably highlight those types of conditions as well. So early morning stiffness that's like 30 to 60 minutes or more and significant loss of range of movement in the shoulder without a clear cause. Now they're generally feeling in the cells with the PMR patients, they can sometimes come in saying they feel. Yeah, they, they feel quite unwell and generally sort of myalgic with lots of muscle aches and pains everywhere. Yeah, that's a good one. I remember you guys spotting one recently. So um, just thinking about uh, red flags, um, what, are the, what, what are we thinking of in terms of the um, potential causes of red flags and what are the red flags for shoulder pains? Again, we, we go off the off the context of the narrative really in terms of does it make us suspicious of anything that's sinister pathology so have they had a trauma um is there potentially some kind of fracture or do they have a 
history of osteoporosis or any other bone health sort of risk factors. Do they have a background medical history of primary cancer? We're sort of aware of certain types of primary cancers that can sort of metastasize to bone structures. So breast, thyroid, renal, bowel, lung um, would probably be high on that on that list of concerns um, alongside the behavior of the pain. So is the pain sort of mechanical, non-mechanical in nature? Is it constant, unremitting? Is it worse in bed at night? Have we got any other systemic features? So have we got an explained weight loss, um, general malaise, feeling unwell, night fevers, sweats, concerning sort of red flags? Um, diabetes would probably be quite high on that list of things we need to be aware of as well, particularly in context of frozen shoulder. There's, there's quite a strong link with diabetes and the incidence of frozen shoulder and epilepsy we've put on that list as well. Um, we've had the occasional cases where people have sort of damaged shoulder uh, structures during seizures. So yeah, that's something something else we'd be aware of too. And I don't know if you mentioned, I didn't hear you, but like cardiac causes as well. So trying to be aware of like non-MSK like in terms of cardiac causes to heart, shoulder and arm pain. Yeah, good point, particularly on the left side. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it can radiate up both both sides of the neck and just really important to think about. Yeah, yeah. good point. So I think the, the behaviour of symptoms would probably be slightly different, wouldn't it? So mm. sort of sternal, mid-thoracic, um, left-sided chest pain, referring into the neck, jaw, um, it can go all the way down the arm and you can get sensory disturbance as well down sort of C8, T1 dermatomal patterns. Um, but it would probably be exertional. And the amount of a cardiac history as well. So we'd always look at the head, uh, medical history as well. Indicate, yeah, um, slightly more risk. Um, so in terms of thinking about um, your investigations, so sort of further assessments or investigations, any any kind of hints or tips or thinking particularly about Suzanne, actually, any anything that you were thinking of uh, doing? When when might you x-ray? If she had a fall and that would have been the onset of a pain, then we possibly would refer for an x-ray, if, depending on how long ago that fall was. There's varying opinions in practice around, like, do we routinely x-ray for frozen shoulder? Um, so the best sort of guidelines... Uh, British Elbow and Shoulder Society uh, guidelines still suggest X-raying to differentiate between osteoarthritis and calcific tendinopathy and other potential causes of shoulder pain um, in the process of diagnosing frozen shoulder. Although I think it's it becomes a bit more of a personal choice, really. Like, are you comfortable diagnosing it clinically without investigation? So yeah, we probably don't do a great deal of routine X-raying. Uh, for shoulders uh, we do in the event of non-invasive treatment not being successful we do refer on to secondary care msk services so orthopedic triage teams they would then proceed to investigations so ultrasound scans for tendon related problems sometimes mri scans for the same or any instability issues I think the age of the patient comes into it a lot as well like with investigations. So we know with like a 45-year-old, we're not necessarily thinking we're going to find any significant away on an x-ray that might block any passive movement. 
So we'll probably I'd be thinking more along the lines if they were passively stiff, more of a frozen shoulder in that age range. And then her pins and needles, is that pointing you in any direction? Is that concerning, do you think? Or I think it would be depend on the, ner- the nerve examination that we'd complete, you know, be looking for any like muscle weakness, um, a loss of reflex that might make us think that there's a a significant cervical component to a pain or it might be two separate things altogether. If it was more the loss of sensation, but the powers there, the reflexes are there, wouldn't we'd wouldn't be highly concerned, but we want to obviously monitor it and maybe refer into physiotherapy for you know, constant continuing monitoring and rehab. Yeah, I think it yeah. De- depends on the severity of symptoms. I know we get a lot of people that are quite anxious about pins and needles. But I suppose on a on a level of concern, it's probably quite low, just being sensory disturbance. So um, we're a bit more worried if there's motor components to the dysfunction. So have they got associated muscle weakness and atrophy as well? And is it peripheral nerve or is it cervical nerve root patterns, you know? Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Thank you. So um, thinking about useful resources for shoulder pain, either for clinicians or patients, what any recommendations as to what's good or what you found helpful? Yeah, there's the best pathways, so the British elbow and shoulder pathways. They have a few of like fro- frozen shoulder subacromial pain, instability pathways that are quite nice. And then we, we often use shoulder doc. It, it, it's got a lot of the details around examination on it, hasn't it? If you want to sort of look at the specifics of particular tests and, and the research behind it, then it's quite useful. Um, the, the British Elbow and Shoulder Society have some useful sort of summaries of the guidance as well. So like some infographics that are quite user-friendly in terms of clinical reasoning processes and um, making appropriate decisions about onward referral. Brilliant. That's lovely. Thank you. Um, and as we always do, we'll end with asking you what um, your top tips are that you want listeners to remember about shoulder pain from our chat today. Um, so really not your red flags. Are they neurally competent? And have they got any passive restriction to the pain? So having a feel of the shoulder, see, does it feel restricted or is it more pain limiting? I think the, the common conditions we get presenting are usually sort of shoulder joint articular so OA and frozen shoulder or subacromial pain so um, degenerative cuff tendons or tendon tears subacromial bursitis probably in there as well isn't it so yeah once we've ruled out red flags and significant nervous system dysfunction then um, you can pick up quite a lot by just looking at the movement so did they have passive passive joint restriction? Would make us think, oh, a frozen shoulder. Um, did they have preserved movement but reduced active movement? Would make us think much more about subacromial structures. Really helpful, yeah. <laughs> I think palpation's quite good in the shoulder as well because when you palpate different certain structures, if they if that reproduces the pain, then you, you can kind of have that in the back of your mind that that might be a possible cause of the pain. Wonderful. Really helpful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys. Uh, so Lisa, we're, it's, we're after recording and we're just reflecting on everything that we've just heard. What are your learning points? 
Um, I think with the with the shoulder episode, um, I was most struck by um, some of the other differentials that might not immediately come to mind. Um, so things like the gallbladder playing, but also the cardiac causes and things like diabe- diabetes being related to frozen shoulder. Um, mm. And maybe thinking about that as a reverse way of finding diabetes almost, if someone's coming in with a frozen shoulder and has other risk factors. Um, so yeah, I find that quite interesting. And then also the, the kind of um, coverage about the neurological component and actually mm. talking about the fact that maybe pins and needles and, and sensory symptoms aren't as worrying as there would be if there was a motor component. Um, so I thought that was um, quite interesting to go over as well in this case. And um, what, what about you? Yeah, I think um, that's interesting and the, how comfortable they were that on clinical examination, you know, if, they, if they're fitting into a box, then actually the, the lower amount of investigations that they might do i thought that was a general learning point for all three of the episodes that actually you know there's there are really specific indications for x-rays or other types of investigations that they kind of have more knowledge of really i think as somebody who's less comfortable with msk different differentials i think i I, i'm more uh, reliant on investigations that aren't necessarily in the patient's best interest or appropriate uh, use of resources so i thought that was a good reflection uh really liked and case in point i don't really often examine passive movement uh, and i didn't really know the difference in terms of some of the differentials between uh, if they can passively move or actively move the joint um i'll always ask them to move their joint and um but yeah sort of uh, passively moving i'm not necessarily doing much of so that was quite interesting yeah feel like I need to sit in and, and watch them do it I think <laughs> <laughs> no I think you're right there, there was there was a lot of um takeaways of the fact that um the the clinical examination and the history can actually tell you quite a lot about the the cause um and mm. and you're right that the the specifics in the shoulder examination um seem to be able to tell you a good bit more about what the diagnosis might be um so I thought that there was some useful learning in there for sure also uh, glad that they added brachial neuritis to the uh, differentials as well because I've seen that a couple of times and um, it's, a, it's a good one to have a knowledge of what it because it's quite an easy one to spot then if you know the the classic history of it or easier <laughs> than some of the other ones um, but yeah really really useful um so yeah so thanks very much for listening and um we you can find all our links as well as our survey um at the end of our episode description so please please do check them out and uh, thanks so much for listening till next time on primary care knowledge based This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Greater Manchester Integrated Care and the Greater Manchester Training Hub. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. This episode was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2024. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links we may have mentioned in the episode.